have you ever watched or just kind of observed the way that children communicate? You know, there's an openness with the way that they share, you know. There's just this rawness with how they will share their stories and what they'll talk about. In fact, I'm told that if you really want to get to know about any of the families in our church, all you need to do is spend a few weeks volunteering and helping out with kids because they'll give you all the dirt, okay? I know it's, from time to time I'll have someone come up to me and say, hey, Pierce said this, you know. And it wasn't that long ago when they were saying Bree said this, right? I mean, there's just we'll share things that as we grow a little older, what happens? We just become a little more guarded, you know. Oh, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to go there. But kids, oh, they'll give you all the dirt. They'll share everything. And so it's almost refreshing and I think actually instructive when you actually go and you just listen to kids pray and you see how they communicate and how they talk to God because they approach God in a way that, well, maybe we don't as we grow a little older. Um, this week I was reading uh, just some letters, some prayer letters that seven-year-olds wrote to God. I'm going to read a few of them for you this morning. Uh, one seven-year-old said, Dear Lord, thank you for the nice day today. You even fooled the weatherman. One said, dear Lord, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my father? One said, dear God, my cat got run over. If you made that happen, could you tell me why? One said, dear Lord, can you guess the biggest river of them all? It's the Amazon. You ought to be able to because you made it. From? Guess who? Uh, If adults were to sit down, and to write those same letters to God, just imagine how different they would sound, you know? As, as we grow up, there, there's something that we've kind of lost on our journey to adulthood, and so our letters to, to the Lord, they're often much more formal, aren't they? We want to make sure that everything sounds just right, and maybe they'd be punctuated a lot more with just hurt, regret, the cares of life. Maybe, maybe our feelings would just like pour off the page of anxiety and worries and, and things like this. We, we've lost something on the road to adulthood. And while we can't just kind of turn back the clocks and have that childlike innocence all over again, one of the things we can do is kind of turn back our hearts to hear God's appraisal of us, his children. And we get to do that this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Listen to what God says about us, his kids. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Last week, as we began chapter 2 of First Peter, we looked and we read about how to live healthy in an unhealthy world. And Peter writes and he says, hey, if you want to be healthy in an unhealthy world, you got to feast on the word of God. 
Because it's, a word, it's the word of God that equips the people of God to do the will of God. So you have to be a people who feast on the word of God. And now he's kind of building off of that. And so he's saying, okay, feasting upon the, the word of God, tasting the goodness of the Lord, that's coming to Jesus. That's coming to him. And so he says, as you come to him, all right? And so he's, he's using this. As you come to him, you're being built up into this spiritual house, into a royal priesthood. What Peter does is he just switches the, the, the uh, metaphor just kind of mid-thought, okay? He begins using this metaphor of nutrition, Okay, here's how you become healthy in an unhealthy world. Here's how you grow up. Here's what you need to feast upon. Here's what you need to consume. And then just mid-thought, it's just like he, he transitions the metaphor. Now it's no longer nutrition that he's talking about. Now it's a building. Now, now you're being built up in, into this building. And so what do you, what's the first most important part of a building in those days? Well, it was the cornerstone. Most buildings was stone masonry. That was it. And so you found the cornerstone. What, what is the stone that everything else is built upon? Because that's foundational. And if that stone falls apart, then your whole, whole, whole building is going to fall apart. So identifying the stone is the most important thing you can do. And he's, he's using this metaphor and he's quoting Psalm 118.22. And it's this prophetic announcement that the Messiah is going to be the stone who the builders reject. But he's going to be chosen by God to be the cornerstone. And so he's creating this imagery of, you know, almost like searching around a a stone quarry to try to find the best stone. And they come across the stone who is Jesus Christ. And they look at at this stone and they say, no way. We, We can't build our lives on him. We can't build off of this stone. I mean, what good is Jesus? He can't do anything for us. So they discard him. He's the stone the builders rejected. Because that's the whole question that he's raising right here that he wants us to, to ask and answer. Like, well, what should you build your lives on? And, and more than even your life, like every detail and every aspect of your life. So what do you build your marriages on? What do you build your families on? What do you build your career on? What do you build your ministry on? What do, what do you build your finances on? What, what do you build every aspect of life upon? And he says, hey, people are looking and they're saying, well, not Jesus. Like, no, no, we're rejecting him. We looked, we, we've appraised him. Nope, not interested. Listen, everyone builds their life on someone or something, okay? Something is foundational to everybody's life. It could be you, it could be yourself. Like, I'm, okay, I'm gonna build my life on myself and what I think, what I want, what, what I dream and all this, and I'm gonna build my life on myself. Other people, it's their spouse. I'm just gonna build my life on my spouse, I'm going to trust whatever, whatever they say that goes. We're going to, or sometimes it's kids. I'm going to build my life on my kids and whatever they say, you know, that, that's it. It's just, it's all for them. Everything I do, it's all about them. Listen, if you don't have the right cornerstone, everything crumbles. Okay. And so as there, as you're looking around at, uh, at cornerstones, okay, what is the stone that I can build everything on? Listen, if your cornerstone is crooked what, and you build on a crooked cornerstone, what happens eventually everything falls over, right? The whole, the whole structure's crooked. Everything eventually falls over. It's no good. If you build your life on a, on a stone that's weak or brittle, what happens? Well, eventually it disintegrates. It gives way. It just breaks apart. And then what happens? Everything else just collapses in on itself. Listen, if you're building your life on anything other than Jesus Christ, it ultimately collapses, Okay? 
Families collapse without Jesus. Marriages collapse without Jesus. Uh, Careers collapse without Jesus. Nations crumble without Jesus. Without Jesus, everything eventually crumbles, and then everybody's yelling, oh man, everything's falling apart. The world's falling apart. Everything's crazy. That was Rome. Things were beginning to collapse. Things were beginning to break down, and everybody's yelling, uh, the world's falling apart. You know what? That's us too. That's us. That's our culture too. And here's the solution. Build your life on Jesus. Build every aspect of your life on Jesus. Now this is important. It's not just build your Sundays on Jesus, okay? Not just build your mealtimes on Jesus. Not just build special occasions on Jesus. No, no, no. It's every moment of every day. It's every aspect of life all built on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he's the stone that the builders appraised and they rejected and they say, no thanks. But he's the stone who's chosen by God to be the cornerstone precious. So he's the cornerstone for you, church. Jesus is the cornerstone. And right now, Peter says, we're like living stones being placed upon him, laid upon him who is the cornerstone. So he sets us right. He makes it fit. He, he, he takes all of our inadequacies, all, all of our stuff, and he fits it together. And because it's laid on, a, on the right cornerstone, he, he makes it work. Now listen, when Peter uses this word living stones, that word that he uses for stone there, it's a very specific type of stone. It's not just like these random stones that are just kind of strewn about the earth. And okay, well, you know, I found this one. I guess we'll like place this into the building. No, no, no. When he uses this word for stone, it's a specific Greek word. And it means a stone of purpose. A stone that, that, uh, that the builder would go and they would find and they would shape and he would mold. And he would put it into the building with purpose. There's a reason for it. Okay? And this is what he says about us, that we're living stones. That God has chosen and he's shaped into the image. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus, shaping us as he's building us up. See, there's purpose now in who we are. There's value in who we are. And, and, and it's because of what God is doing in our lives that gives us that. There's meaning, there's reason, all these different things. Everyone else, they're running around yelling, it's falling apart, the world's falling apart, everything's crumbling, this is crazy, what, what, what are we going to do? And the church says, no, 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 no. Not everything's falling apart. Why? Because I built my life on Jesus. So when the world's going crazy and they're all consumed with worry, what do we have? We have hope. When the world's like anxious and, oh man, everything's a mess, what do we have? Peace, right? When, when, the, when the world's just downcast and, oh man, everything's terrible, what do we have? Joy, right? And, P- and Peter writes and he says, hey, you are being built into this thing. It's like a spiritual house. You're a royal priesthood. Now, what's the thing about a royal priesthood, the priesthood back in the Old Testament? The priests were the special ones who had access to God, okay? They were the ones. They had access to God. And Peter's saying, now now God is building you, church, into the special people who have access to God. Why? Through Jesus Christ. And you have access to him. It's not just for the priests anymore. You're all priests. It's a kingdom of priests, and you all have access to him. So you get to come to him, and you get to lay everything on him so that you get to build your life upon him, and you get to build your marriage upon him, and you get to build your families upon him, and your finances upon him, your singleness upon him. Everything is built upon Jesus. 
And then what happens? Jesus, because it's built on him, it's all spiritual sacrifice to God. And because it's built on him, it's beautiful in God's sight. It's acceptable. When it's just us, we corrupt things, you know. When it's just built on us, we, we corrupt it. And so this is all built on Jesus, and therefore it's beautiful, it's acceptable in God's sight. And then and Peter, he goes on from there, and he just starts peppering the church with a whole bunch of Scripture just to reinforce everything that he's saying and to prove everything that he's saying. So Isaiah 28, 16, I lay a stone in Zion, chosen and precious cornerstone. And he who believes, oh man, he's not going to be disappointed because it's a great honor to believe. It's what Peter's saying. But for you who don't believe, well, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, hey, you chose wrong because Jesus is the cornerstone. And then Isaiah 8, 14, the Messiah, he's going to be a stone of stumbling and he's going to be a rock of offense. If you build your life on Jesus, just go back to the prophets and it shows you it's, it's an honor. Your life will matter. There's purpose there because he is the chosen cornerstone, precious. And then your sacrifice is acceptable. It's good in God's sight. But listen, there are those who are yelling and crying. Everything's falling apart. Everything's crumbling. Why? Because they don't know where to start building. And they're building on the wrong cornerstones. And then we come along. We say, no, no, no. Well, you got to build your life on Jesus. You're sinful. You got to build on Jesus. Your spouse is sinful. You can't build on your spouse. Your kids are sinful. You can't build your life on your, on your kids. You, you, you got to build on Jesus. Why? Because all, they're all sinful. They all bring corruption to it. If I build on me, I, bring, I corrupt the building. It's eventually going to collapse. Jesus is holy. He's righteous. He's the only solid, firm foundation from which you can build a life upon. And so you build on him because then he is the firm foundation. So that's the whole point. And so you go and you share. Hey, this is the message that you get to share. Build your life on Jesus. And some people hear that and they say, no, 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 I can't build my life on Jesus because that would really complicate my life. I mean, I got a lot of friends out there and they don't think anything of Jesus. And if I go to them and say, hey, I'm actually, Jesus is the most important person in my life. He, he's, he defines everything now. Well, that's going to really mess things up for me. I'm going to have to try to explain this. They're going to think I'm crazy. I'm all in on the Jesus train. Like, I, don't, I, I can't do that. Like he, he might be a little small sliver or something I can do, but I, I just can't go all in. He complicates things way too much. And, and then plus, hey, I got my wants. I got my desires. I got the way I live, my routine. And I know a little bit about Jesus. And if I bring him into all that, I got to change stuff. I got to change the way I talk. I got I to change the way I think. I got to change what I prioritize. I don't want to do all that. Jesus just complicates things way too much. See, for those people, Jesus is a stumbling block. They hear about Jesus. There may be even something that's appealing about Jesus. I can't do it. He's con he just complicates stuff. He's a stumbling block. And then there's others, and they say, no way. No way am I building my life upon Jesus. I'm not having Jesus tell me what to do. Are you kidding me? I know what the Bible says and all this stuff. I'm not, I'm, Jesus is not going to speak into my finances. I'm going to steward my life the way I want to. Jesus isn't going to speak into my marriage. I, I know what to do. I'm fine. Jesus isn't going to speak into my career, my ambitions, and all this kind of stuff. I, I can determine all that. I don't need him. No. And what they're saying is, no, I don't, I don't want you. I've tested. I've, I've approved. I've been the judge, and I've actually determined that I know better than Jesus. 
And the thought of having Jesus like speak into my life and what I do, well, that's offensive. There's no way that he's speaking in to what I think, what, how I live. Jesus is not speaking into that. He's offensive. Now, one of the key questions that we can ask as the church is, is our culture, is Jesus more a stumbling block or is he more an offense? That question right there is one of the most important diagnostic questions that you can ask in terms of discipling and reaching our culture. Is Jesus more a stumbling block or is he more an offense? Listen, Paul, he takes this same quote from Isaiah and he, and he says, for the Jew, Jesus is a stumbling block. And for the Greek, for the Gentile, Jesus is foolishness. He's an offense. Okay? So Paul, he kind of clarifies it a little more and he shows, okay, who's gonna, who is Jesus going to be a stumbling block for and who is Jesus just going to be really offensive to? And he says, for the Jew, stumbling block. Okay? For those who are religious, Jesus is a stumbling block. For those who are irreligious or polytheists, they got all kinds of theories going on. He's simply offensive. Then when you look at Paul's ministry, how did, how did Paul go about reaching and discipling Jews versus how did Paul go about reaching and discipling Gentiles? Entirely different approaches. Completely different approaches, okay? So when he went after Jews, what did he do? It was the synagogue. That's where he started, right? The place of worship. Well, let's meet right here and let's talk about you know, who Jesus is. And where did he begin? He begins with the scriptures. That's his beginning point. It's his starting point. It's primarily the prophets. And he's pointing them from the prophets. Hey, Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so he reasons with them in their place of worship, beginning with the scriptures, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. When he goes to reach Gentiles, he does it an entirely different way. He doesn't say, hey, Come to the synagogue, come to the church building, come to our place of worship, and then, I'll, and, then, and then we'll tell you all about who Jesus is. No, he doesn't do that at all. What does he do? He goes to the marketplace. He meets them just where the people are. And what's his starting point? It's not with the scripture. No, no, he actually starts by just kind of building some common ground with them. He'll talk to them about their poets and their philosophers and things in the city and stuff like this. This is how he, he, he just builds common ground with them. And then when he transitions to the scripture, he doesn't transition to the prophets to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Where does he transition to? Creation. To show that God is the one who created everything. He created the heavens. He created the earth. This is where we start. Because if, if God created everything, then well, you can trust what he says and you can build your life upon him. Because the one who created you knows you and you can trust you can build on him. Now listen, I believe that one of the issues that we have today in our culture is that culture has shifted and we've become much more a culture uh, where Jesus is an offense and not so much a culture of religious people. Now when you're dealing with religious people, the approach still works. Where do you want to re- re- reach religious people? In a church building. Because they're already coming. It's part of what they do. 
And they think that by their coming, that they're appeasing God. And okay, you know, God's happy with me because I showed up. And, you know, if I can just measure up, if I can perform good enough, God's going to be good to me. He's going he's to be pleased with me. But the whole weight of religion is I've got to perform. And so you almost view God with this like performance mentality. And I've, I've got to make him happy. I've got, I've, got, I've, got to, I've got to perform good enough so that he can be pleased. And what's the good news of the gospel? Then in a place like this, we can say, no, no, no. Jesus is who you need because he performed on your behalf. He lived the life that you could never live. He died in the place for all those bad things that you've done. It's no longer performance. See, the yoke of Jesus is not heavy. The yoke of Jesus is not this difficult life of strength. No, no, no. The yoke of Jesus is easy. His burden is light. And so you get to proclaim the gospel and people respond. Because, oh, what, what did they have? Well, they had the yoke of religion. What did they need? They need a relationship with Jesus. And you can do that here. But for people who find Jesus offensive, they're not coming here, right? Say, well, Jesus, I don't want to go to your place where you worship Jesus. I don't care anything about Jesus. I don't care to have him speak into my life. I don't, I don't care to build my life on Jesus. Why, why would I go to your place of worship? So where do you meet them? Just like Paul did, you meet them in the marketplace. It's why here at Central, we do things like uh, we love our city and we're getting out there, Central Cares, and just showing, hey, we, we love our city. We're for our city. It's why we do things like VBS in the park. Why? We take it to where the people are, to the marketplace. It's why we do like Christmas neighborhood parties and things like this, so that we can be involved. We can meet people in the marketplace of life. You know, it's one of the reasons that here at Central, you hear us talk a lot about, hey, share Jesus, impact people, wherever it is that you live, work, study, and play. You ever notice one of the things that we don't really say is where you worship? That's not really part of it. Why? Because our culture, Jesus is an offense. So if you're going to reach our culture and make an impact in culture, well, then you got to go to culture. You don't just throw up a, a welcome sign, Right? So listen, if, if you want to know the health of a ministry, all right, in, the health of a ministry, what do you look at? Well, one of the key diagnostic tools is just look at, okay, how many Bible studies and how many things are done in a church building versus how many Bible studies and, and stuff is done outside of a church building. And that'll give you a pretty good indicator of health, okay? If it skews real heavily, like everything's happening in the church building, well, that's not a good sign of health, okay? There, they're either declining uh, on, on a path toward death or, you know, they've got a really effective Christian country club going on, but probably a little more um, than that. You know, what you want to see are Bible studies and things just happening around the culture, just wherever you live, work, study, and play. And as believers, we got to think strategically and intentionally, okay, how am I going to live life in the marketplace so I can disciple my culture. This culture who needs Jesus more than they need their next breath, okay? You, you, we've got to think that way. We've got, we must be prepared to reach our culture. You must be prepared to reach your culture. And your discipleship methodology, it ought to be determined by those you're trying to reach. If you're trying to reach Jews, religious people who find Jesus a stumbling block, you, really, you, you reach them one way. If you're trying to reach Gentiles, polytheistic, irreligious people, you reach them a different way. But you must know who you're after because that determines what you do. Um, I was talking to a friend this week 
And he was just looking at the state of the church, and he was bothered by it. This guy, he works at a hospital in Arizona, and uh, he just said, you know what, Steve? I just, uh, my wife and I were looking at everything. We we're kind of bothered by the state of the church, and we just determined we got so many unsaved friends and, and we also have friends who at one time were part of a church, but they've kind of rejected the church, they've kind of turned away from it, they don't want really anything to do with it anymore. And so we just decided that we were going to start like doing some hikes, now that the weather's a little nicer. So we invited our friends just to like hike these trails in Arizona and then meet at the trailhead for a Bible study. And he said, you wouldn't believe it, we had 15 people come out the first time. It's like, I never would have thought. These people are not like church people, but they came out to hike a trail and to study the Bible that way. Why? Because he's reaching irreligious people the way you reach them. He's not just like, hey, will you, will you come to the church building with me? Because they're not interested in that. Listen, the cornerstone of our faith, this is where it all ties back, the cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ. It's not the church building, okay? This place is great for us. I mean, we, we got to get together and meet together and gather together. That's important. It's critical. We never want to stray from doing that. The Bible tells us, right? We, we need to be built up and encouraged. And this is a great place to reach religious people and introduce them to the true Jesus. But the cornerstone of our faith is not the church building. The cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have the freedom to take Jesus and the good news of the gospel wherever it is we live, work, study, and play because he is Lord of all. Peter's already said, hey, listen, look around. Everything dies. I mean, he basically concluded chapter one that way. The, the grass of the field, the, the, the flowers of spring, whatever, it dies. Everything dies. Everyone, every nation, every methodology, every family, every ideology is like that. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And so what do you do? You build your life on the truth of God's word. You feast upon it, and in doing that, you're building your lives on Jesus. And we look at this thousands of years later, what are we consuming? God's word. It does. It endures forever, just like Peter said. And it nourishes, and encourages, and it builds up. And what does it point to? Jesus. Jesus is the center of scripture. He's the center of of the world, the universe, and he ought to be the center of our lives. We build everything upon him. I've told you this before. Everybody wants heaven, right? Everybody likes the idea of heaven on earth. We all, we all want heaven, but we all don't want to build a life that gets there. And the only way you get there is by building your life on Jesus Christ. You say, okay, Jesus, it's all you. So I'm going to open my Bible. With open Bibles, I want to discover more about who you are and, and what you've done. He's the cornerstone. I'm going to build every part of every aspect of my life upon him. And then what happens? Well, it's incredible. Things start to come together. Marriages start to come together. Families start to come together. Uh, Your career starts to come together. Finances start to come together. Everything starts to come together. Does that mean everything's perfect? Everything just works out well? No, not at all. I mean, just read, read the story of the disciples, right? Read just about any follower of Jesus throughout the century. Read the early church fathers right? Any of these guys like, oh man, I'm building my life on Jesus and now my life's just super cushy and nice. I don't know. It's just, it's just the opposite, right? It's, it's, it's incredibly hard. It's difficult, but it's all worth it. It's like there's a joy with which they live. There's an excitement with which they live. There's a purpose. There's a reason to everything they're doing. Listen, I believe in, in incredibly, one, one of the prayers that I've been praying uh, recently for me is just, Lord, 
Would you count me worthy to suffer for you and your gospel in the same way Jesus Christ suffered for us? Right? May I be like the disciples, right? Who just, man, they counted it a joy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I think with where things are headed, that we need to be thinking that way. Lord, put me in places where I just spend my life out for you, whatever the cost. When you build your life on Jesus, it's worth it. Because do you hear what God calls you? Do you hear what he says about you? Because this is how Peter ends. He says that God calls you a chosen race. If you're a Christian, you're a chosen race. All the nations, all the cultures, all the languages, all the ethnicities, all the people groups. If you're a Christian, it's because God's chosen you to be a part of this new born-again race. And it's made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's a, it's a wonderful race. It is a chosen race. And he goes on, he says, you're a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, like we talked about before, the, the priests, they were the ones who had access to God. Yes, and we had this incredible privilege that we as priests now have access to God. But do you know why the priests had access to God? It was for two primary functions. One was so that they could, then, they could then go and represent God to people, to the people. And it was also so that they could also represent the people to God. That they would go and they would tell the people, hey, here's who God is, here's what he's like, here's what he says. But at the same time, they get to represent the people to God and they get to pray for people. This is our function as priests. We get to represent people to God. We get to pray on behalf of those who don't even know how to pray for themselves. And at the same time, we get to represent God to them. We get to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And listen, you say, whoa, that's, I didn't realize that was like such a calling, you know? I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. It's, listen, it's a whole lot easier when you just have one man as your priest, you know? It's, a way, it's way easier. If, okay, that guy's the priest, or he basically functions that way. And listen, there's a whole lot of pastors and a whole lot of churches who are more than happy to be your priest, all right? They're more than happy to function that way. Listen, I have no desire to function that. I don't want to be your priest. If you're looking for a priest, there's other places you can go. But here we're biblical. And we actually believe not in the priesthood of the pastor, but the priesthood of the believer. That we're all called to share the goodness of Jesus Christ. That we're all called to also share the burdens of people before God our Father. We are a kingdom of priests. It's a beautiful thing. And this is what God says for all of us. Every last one of us. We've all been given this privilege. God, or Peter goes on. He says, God also calls you a holy nation. I mean, just look around the world. How many holy nations do you see out there? Right? None. There's no holy nation. You don't look around. Wow, that nation. They're so holy. Yeah. There's none. We, why? Because we corrupt it. Humanity corrupts things because we're sinful. The only holy nation is the kingdom of God. And right now, while we live here, yes, we have residents here, but we are dual citizens. Citizens of, I think, all of us, the United States, and at the same time, citizens of heaven. And that Citizen in, he in heaven, that is the holy nation that we are a part of. We are set apart people as a holy nation. And so we work for the best of whatever nation we're a part of now. Peter goes on. He says, God also calls you a people for his possess possession that you can proclaim his excellencies. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a cool thought. 
But God looks around and says, I choose you and I want 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 you. It's like, a, it's like this adoptive father who just says, hey, you're all my family. I just choose you. You're, you're my family. And then what do we get to do? We get to proclaim how just great our father God is. And we go around, okay, so a world that's screaming, saying everything's crumbling, everything's falling apart. We say, hey, there's a solution. Jesus. He, would, he wants you to be part of his family. We, we get to share what Jesus has done, who he is, what he's done, and who they, who they can be. It's a beautiful thing. That's what we are. We're, we're a people for God's possession to proclaim his excellencies. And Peter goes on. He says, you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, some of you, you just live kind of in the darkness a little bit, right? Because there's this hurt from past decisions, past choices. See, well, I just want to bury that kind of deep down in some dark closet, and I never want it to come out. You know, you, you almost live scared. I hope, I hope no one ever opens that closet and goes in there and finds out all this stuff because it hurts so much, and there's pain, and there's remorse, and there's regret. You think, well, I need to hide that. Well, I don't want anybody to ever see that. And what Peter says is God looks at you and says, no, no, I'm bringing you out of the darkness. We don't have to hide in the closet anymore. You don't have to bury stuff away. You get to bring it out and you get to lay it all before the feet of Jesus. And Jesus takes it and he knows it and he redeems it. And he purifies you so you don't have to live in the darkness anymore. Now you can live in his light. You can live redeemed. You can live free. You can live open. The one who knows you, fully knows you, fully loves you. You've been brought out of darkness into his light. And he goes on to say, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Right now, what's our culture largely trying to figure out? A big question, who am I? You know, it's a question of identity. Nobody seems to know who they are anymore. Right? They, they don't know their sexuality. They, they, they don't know who, who, they're, who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do. They don't know what, where meaning is, where importance is, purpose, all these things. It's a, it's a question of identity. And what does God give us? He gives us identity. He says, no, no, you're my people. Once you didn't have an identity, once, once you were confused, you're trying to figure anything, but now you know you're my people. So you're part of my family. So here's the ethic. Here's the reason for being. Here's how you get to live. You're my people. And then he says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, there's certain things that you do if you post online, I mean, or, or you know, people post online about things that people have done. Hey, man, there's no mercy there, right? There's no mercy. No, no, it's unrelenting. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, all that stuff that you've done, yeah, you deserve the punishment of God, but guess what? I took it. You deserve the separation from God, but guess what? I endured that. No, you receive God's mercy. You're recipients of his love, of his grace, so I want you to see just in, in these two verses, you just see the heart of the Father God for you if you're a Christian, if you know him. This is the heart of the Father for you. And here's the point. Never forget what God says about you. Never forget who you are, your identity. Never forget what God says about you. Maybe, maybe you need to just print out these two verses, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And so you can just read over them and remind yourself, okay, this is my identity. You need to memorize them. This is, this is who God says that I am. Listen, the one who made you defines you. You might define yourself with all kinds of different stuff and, oh man, I'm worthless. I'm just, I'm so messed up. Everything I do, I always seem to mess everything up. I, I just feel so powerless. I, 
uh, I'm so confused, I'm so worried. You might define yourself in a whole bunch of different ways. Or maybe you take the other end of the spectrum. Man, I'm great. I've got it all together, you know? If, if more people were just like me, this world would be a better place. You know, whatever the case may be, the one who made you defines you. And this is how he talks about his church. This is how he talks about his family. Now, sometimes even in the church, we hear things like, oh man, we're all sinners, you know, we all stink. We're just one big mess. <laughs> what does God say? You're my people. You're a holy nation. You're, you're, you've been brought out of all that darkness. Yeah, that may have defined you at one point, but now, now I brought you into my marvelous light. You can be fully known and still be fully loved because it's been redeemed. It's been paid for. Once you didn't have a purpose, you're like, oh, yeah, it's so messed up trying to figure things out. But now you have identity. This is your, your mind. This is who you are. See, once you identify yourself the way God identifies you and you see yourself through that light, I think maybe the, the rawness, the, the openness, the, on, the authenticity with which we talk and communicate to God, maybe, maybe it regains just a little bit of that childlike innocence. We feel like, hey, we, we can just lay everything before him. I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm not, I don't have my guard up. I don't, I don't have to word, th- word things just right and try to sound impressive. And, no, no, no. It's family. He's a good, good father. And this is how he defines you. We get to build our lives upon Jesus who sets everything right and he shapes us, who conforms us into his image and makes it all good. Listen, as we kind of wrap things up this morning, we're going to do it slightly differently. Uh, As most, if not all of you know, Israel was attacked yesterday by one of Iran's uh, proxy uh, militant groups, Hamas. And so it was, it was brutal. Over 600 people dead, thousands more injured. They, um, you know, they went right at the end of one of their festivals and they went uh, and attacked on the Sabbath for Israel, which for them, they, they all go to bed kind of early on the Sabbath. So a lot of them were sleeping when they attacked. And one of the things they did is they went in yesterday, they, they drug out elderly people, women, children, paraded them, back across uh, along with dead Israeli soldiers who they had killed. I mean, it's just grisly images coming out um, in video coming out from over there. And so, you know, as a kingdom of priests, one of the things we want to do this morning is just kind of take some time and to kind of represent the people of Israel to our faithful God. And you know, when we look at that, we think about it really, as you go through the Bible, it shouldn't necessarily surprise us that this has happened. Um, and we should also have confidence that Israel's going to make it through. Why? Not because Israel has some great military, and for a country their size, they do, and not because they're friends with us and we'll have their back, uh, but ultimately because of the God of Israel. And... Um, you know, because God has kept his promises to Israel, that's one of the reasons that we have confidence that he'll keep his promises to us, that everything he says about us really does matter because he's demonstrated that it matters. So uh, this morning as we close, I just invite you to kind of huddle up with groups of, um, you know, three, four, five, six, if you want, and I have a couple of you pray on behalf of Israel and also on behalf of maybe any of your unbelieving um, friends, family, 
coworkers, things like that. And then in just a couple minutes after, I'll, I'll come up from, from the stage and just close us out that way. Go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to be a kingdom of priests and to be allowed to come together on behalf of, of Israel. Got many of them right now live in a state of, of unbelief. Um, but God, right now also in a state of hurt, in a state of fear, in a state of terror, as families have been ripped apart and loved ones have died and they're, they're mourning over there and there's, there's fear about what's happening next and being in this state of war. And so God, I pray that, uh, that you would use this time and in their unbelief that you would begin to regather some of them spiritually. We've already seen your hand of providence over that nation and how you've regathered them physically, God. And we know that there is a day coming when there will be a great regathering spiritually. We, we pray that we would see one now, though, that many of them would find their hope and their trust in you. And God, thinking about that also causes us to think about unbelieving friends and family, co-workers, God, who are simply lost. Maybe they're religious, maybe they're irreligious, but the fact of the matter is they, they need a relationship with your son Jesus more than they even need their next breath. And so, God, we, we come on behalf of them as well and ask that they would know your son Jesus and begin to build their lives upon him. God, would you build a deep conviction in who we are, that we would know who you say we are. God, that you call us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. God, once we were not a people, but now we're your people. Once we had not received mercy, but God, now we've tasted and received your mercy. May we be a people who live life based on the identity that you give us. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Central, share Jesus, impact people. Have a great week.